Go ahead and take your Bible, if you would, and turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, we are continuing our study in the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians. Great portion of Scripture. Uh, it's all great, right? And uh, we are going to chapter 2, and we will begin with verse 13. Chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. Paul goes back to a, uh, a theme that he has uh, spoken of before, his, his overflowing thankfulness for the uh, church at Thessalonica. Chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. Father, we praise you now for the time that we have had singing your word back to you. We thank you that we've been able to read as a congregation your word, to hear your word. And now I pray for, just like the Thessalonians had, I pray that you would help us receive the word. I pray that you would give us attentive, open ears that we would eagerly take into our minds the thoughts of this book, the message of the gospel. But even beyond that, even as the, again, the believers at Thessalonica did, that we would accept it, that we would personally appropriate it and put it into action. So, Father, we thank you that you will do this. Help us as we lead up to our time of, of this marvelous illustration of the cross on our behalf, the justification and reconciliation that is ours through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ as we demonstrate that by taking the Lord's Supper. We thank you and we praise you now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I think the greatest thing for a Christian parent is to be able to look at their children, their students, their young people, and see them walking in the things of God. Amen. But I think, too, that one of the greatest griefs, and it's probably a reality for some people in here today as a Christian parent, is to see your children 
Maybe others in your family who have rejected the things of God. They've walked away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the things that makes this even more grievous is when those children, and I know that you have said it, if you have children in that situation, when those children depart from the truth of the Word of God, having had so much privilege. That's what Paul is doing in this passage. He's looking at, first of all, his children in the faith for whom he is incredibly glad. He's overjoyed the church in Thessalonica. He's grateful. Now, if we want to to step back and look back, we could go back to chapter 1. That took us three weeks or four weeks to go through, but there were ten reasons for which Paul was grateful for that church there. He was grateful for how they had responded in the midst of hard circumstances, how they had received the Word. He was glad And remember this, the shocking thing is that these people had come out of rank paganism, out of idolatry, we learn at the end of chapter 1, and in only three weeks' time, that's how long Paul was with them, that they turned to following the Lord Jesus Christ. They made the most of the message they heard. And then Paul goes into a contrast. I I find this very interesting. He speaks, and I believe it's sadly. If you don't pick up on it here, we're going to go in just a minute to some other verses where you will see that there is grief, there is sadness in Paul's heart. Not that the Jews were his children, but they were his brothers. They were his kinsmen. And they became enemies of God's message, even though they had incredible privilege. I'm talking about centuries of revelation compared with three weeks, mind you, and had squandered all of those privileges. And look at the outcome. Just go back if you've got your Bibles open, which I hope you do. The last part of chapter 1, he talks about what would be the outcome for the, the, the believers at Thessalonica. He talked about and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And He uses exactly the opposite terminology when He comes to the last statement that I just read to you about the Jews. But God's wrath has come upon them at last, or fully, or to completion. Now, remember this. Students, adults, all of us here, those of you listening at home, those of you in the overflow room, we are not talking just about a little church in ancient Greece and the Jewish people. I hope you've picked up on that because you can have every privilege possible. You can have every opportunity to hear and to receive and to accept the gospel and still miss salvation. We read about that in a passage 
Like the author to the Hebrews said, for good news came to us just as to them, the Jewish people, but the message they heard did not profit them. It did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So let's walk through this. You see the outline, very simple outline in your worship guide, some quotes. We're not, we're not going to go to the quotes as we walk our way through this, but they are important. So I'd love you to go back to those in just a little bit. Let's look first of all. There is a right way to respond to the Word. And by the way, whenever you see Paul using that here in, in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, many of his writings the Word is equal to the gospel. It's the Word of God, which is the gospel of God. And he says this, we also thank God constantly for this. Paul was grateful. And we find this out if we go back to chapter 1, verse 2, his gratefulness issued into something else. It said, and we pray for you. Now, that's easy, isn't it? Isn't it easy for us to pray for those who are doing the right thing? That's easy. But I, I, I thought about this and I wanted to stop and make an application. What about praying for those for whom it is anything but easy? And I'll be sprinkling things as I have all along the way. I am talking about our current situation, but I'm talking about much more than our current situation because our current situation, as I've said over and over again, is just a little slice of every other kind of crisis that have faced, has faced the people of God throughout the centuries. What about today when there is so much opposite opinion about so many things. I thank God that I made the choice several years ago to never get on Facebook, at least to personally be involved in it, or other social kinds of media. You may think I'm outdated, a dinosaur, because I don't tweet. Well, I tweet sometimes when my voice breaks. I don't tweet social media. I, I don't do that. Every once in a while, I'll look at Jan's Facebook just to see what's happening, and I'm appalled. Here's what I'm appalled at. I'm a... Not her Facebook, not her comments. You know, I always pray before I come up here, Lord, don't let me say anything. Okay. But, but here, here's what I've observed. I've observed Christians that I know are Christians. I watch their posts, and they post something, and then somebody else posts something, and they're also a Christian, sometimes members of this church, and they, 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 get, they get angry. And, and I know I've been unfriended, not on Facebook. I know I've been unfriended, but, you know, they unfriend each other. And I, 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 I was studying this, and I started thinking, you know, Paul prayed for Christians that he got along with. Do you think we ought to pray for Christians that we don't get along with, who may have a variance of opinion about face masks? Yeah. 
I'm not, I'm not saying for you to, to, to give up whatever your opinion is or your opinion on the whole racial tension situation and all of the things that are being said about those. I'm not asking you to, I could in a private conversation, ask you to give up some of those thoughts. But here's why it's important that we pray for Christians that we don't agree with. That's really not what Paul is saying, but I, I, I thought, j just forgive me for making an application that I think needs to be made to us as followers of Christ. Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies, but do more than that, Christian. Pray. Pray for those who persecute you by unfriending you. Paul gets on in on it. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Why? Why do we need to pray? And, and I don't know. This probably goes through your mind. I know that I'm preaching to the choir. I said that this morning in ABF. Uh, maybe this is one of those echo chambers where we're all saying the same thing. I really don't think so. So let me encourage you to know that when you pray, Prayer bridges the gap between you and other people. They can, you can be here and they can be way over there. And I'm not talking about just geographically. I'm talking about with your particular beliefs. And the, and the thing about it is, I don't see anything going on in those discussions that has anything to do with doctrine. It's one thing to, to disagree about some basic doctrines. These are all pretty much preferences about things. And prayer bridges the gap over what separates you. It helps you not to write people off. Does anybody have a problem with that? No testimonies, but I do. I do. It, it, I, really, I'm just confessing to you. And I recognize it, so I try to, to, to pray about it and pray for those people. But if someone has hurt me, my tendency is just to, 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 to act like they are a non-entity. I don't say that. I just do it. And, and so this is a great exercise for me to pray for people that I don't agree with. Prayer can do wonders. Listen, students. Prayer can do wonders to overcome barriers of a estrangement or let's say that you, you have a rift between you, yourself and a parent or a family member or a sibling and bitterness, anger has sprung up, the things that separate us. See, here's what I've discovered. If, really, if you love someone, you will pray for them, right? Amen. And if you don't love them, Eventually, unless you're intentional, you'll stop praying for them. Because, again, I've discovered that when you pray, one of two things will happen. You'll either start loving or you'll stop praying. Just an application about Paul's heart for the church, this baby church at Thessalonica. So let's go back, like a proud parent, in addition to the 10 things that we talked about in chapter 1, he was glad, oh, this is so good, he was glad. It, it, look at the, 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 the bunch, he bunches up a, a, a several different concepts. He was glad that they received the Word of God, the gospel, 
which they were messengers. He heard, they, they heard from Paul and Silas and Timothy, and they accepted it. So when Paul preached the word of God to the church at Thessalonica, two things happened that have got to happen every time. I don't care if it's in ABF or, or the, the, the Sunday school, the student hour, or at Barnabas, or, or any number of places where you hear the word of God proclaimed, the first thing you've got to do is receive it. You say, well, that's easy. Aren't we receiving it right now? I don't know. Here's what that word means. It means to be attentive. You have open ears. You're eagerly taking into the mind the truth of the message. I've said this before. It looks as if most of the activity happening right now is up here. Right? If you were asked, where, where, where's the most activity? It's right up there where Marty is. And he's preaching and he's kind of moving around. If he gets real excited, he may move outside the, from behind. It looks like all the activity is here. But according to Jesus in the parable of the sower, that is not true. The greatest amount of activity is happening right in your mind as you are receiving the word. Jesus, in the parable of the sower, he used the, the illustration of birds. He said, birds come, and if that seed doesn't find its way into the mind and then into the heart, guess what happens? And he defines it later on, the, the enemy. The enemy comes and plucks away the seed from it, it just bouncing around on the hard earth of some of the hearers, some of the minds in a place like this. Most of the activity is right there where you're sitting. And, and that's why I, I've talked about before the birds. We, we did a series on the parables of Jesus, and we talked about the birds of distraction, the, the birds of other thoughts, thinking about lunch, the, the birds about all kinds of different things can steal the word. So make sure right now, right now, and particularly as we come to a call to receive, if you don't know Jesus Christ to receive the gospel, I'm speaking to adults and children and young people. But you've got to receive it first into the mind. And then they, did, they didn't just do that. They accepted it. They personally appropriated it. They acted on it. And that is so huge. That is so huge. Here is a, a, a statement. I thought about our, our students that went to Barnabas this last week, and uh, I, I think I even mentioned or I have mentioned in the past, it's easy to come back from a, a camp like that, and you're all, you know, you're, you're excited and maybe excited about the word you've heard and you've applied it and all the rest, and, and then it just kind of, it kind of fades away. But, but the best time to get the word into the heart of a person is when they're, when they're children. And I'm so glad that we have children in here. And some of you look attentive. And some of you look about as attentive as some of the adults in here look. <laughs> Don't kid yourself, parents. When they're drawing those pictures, 
They're writing down those things. You've got them sitting under the, the, the preaching of the Word of God, and the Word does not return void. I, I love that one of, one of Paul's cohorts that was with him on this second missionary journey, I'm, I'm appreciating more and more the second missionary journey of Christ, uh, of Paul. And now Timothy, Timothy, that little guy that was, that was biracial, that was with them, Paul and Silas, and, and he was there. Look, look where he was when he started hearing the Word. He started hearing the Word at a young age. He heard the sacred scriptures which were able to make him wise for salvation. And so are our young people, and I'm glad for that. You see, here's what we're talking about. Receiving and accepting. Receiving and accepting. That is so, so important. It's one thing to receive good information. It's another thing to act on it. Okay, let me give you some good information. Don't text while you drive. That is great information. It'll do you no good if you don't act on it. Here's what I can say to you. I just put up Timothy as a young child. And I'm going to look around for the oldest, George Gilbert. I don't see him, and I, I'm not sure if John Crosey was in ABF earlier. But here's what I'm saying from the youngest to the oldest today. Be a lifelong learner from the Word of God. Don't ever let the gospel, the Word, become stale to you. All right, so they received it. They accepted it. But here's another thing. Again, he packs these words in here. Not as the words of men. Lord, help us. You, you didn't just take these as the opinions of, of us who were standing and teaching these things from the Old Testament Scriptures and applying them to the Lord Jesus, but you accepted it for what it really is, not was, is the Word of God, and then he goes on, which is at work in you believers. Again, Paul and Silas and Timothy were the messengers. They were delivering God's message. And here again, I have to stop, and I was thinking about this, the words of men. There is no small opportunity around us today for the words of men. Again, heaven, help us. There, there are so many people teaching so many different things, and they are the words of men. Don't be carried away. Paul says that. Don't let anyone take you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition. Gnosticism was rampant in those days. It's rampant. Today, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And that's why we've got to do something. We have to do something every day. We have to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ found in His Word. In, in other words, when you're confronted with any idea, 
it may be social media, it may be just in discussion with, with an individual or, or whatever else it may be. Here is the bottom line. Here is the acid test. What does God's Word say about that? Paul would say, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. Now, here's the real crux. I said I wasn't going to quote, but I will point you to that wonderful short quote from James Montgomery Boyce. The real issue with the people right here, with you and most of the people listening, is not about the inerrancy of Scripture. You believe that the Bible is the Word of God. You even believe that it's authoritative. But here is the real thing that's being drawn into question today. Is the Bible sufficient? Paul says this, all Scripture. Now, he was referring at that point to the Old Testament that reveals Christ. But we know that that does apply now to the New Testament as well. All Scripture is God-breathed. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The Bible is sufficient. Second Peter reminds us of that, not referring directly to the Bible, but obviously growing out of it. His divine power in His Word has granted to us, basically here's what he's saying, everything we need Anything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence is found in this book. And that is why when the, the, the three amigos came up to Troas, you remember they were bouncing around in Asia Minor trying to go one place and then another, and the Holy Spirit was not letting them go because he had a plan for his mission work, and they get to Troas, and Paul has a, has a vision in the night, and he sees a man that simply says this in the vision, come over and help us. If you had been Paul, how would you have interpreted that? We know from Scripture how he did. But I was thinking again in the context of where we are today and, and, and where the church has been in the past. Paul might have concluded, wow, you know, I, I've heard about Macedonia. Man, they, they've got some real problems going on with this or with that. Moral problems, economic problems, political problems. Man, we need to go over there and help them with that. But here is basically what they concluded that God was telling them to do, to go and preach the gospel because they knew that really was the answer, that when men and women and students are transformed from the inside out, we're not trying to hang spiritual fruit on dead trees, make them moral people. but rather see them transform from the inside out. By the way, 
This word is good for all people in all places and at all times. And one more thing it says right here. I I just, again, I'm blown away by how Paul packs so much. He says, you received it, you accepted it, not as the word of man, but as the word of God, what it really is. And then he, he goes on to say one more thing. Oh, and by the way, this word that you have received is powerfully at work in you believers. The word works. If, if you receive it and you accept it and you live according to the word, the word works. I'm not saying it's going to make you perfect. But the word is powerful. It always works. It always brings change. You can see that again back in chapter 1 and how that, that he talked about the gospel coming in to them, they received it. it. It came in power. It came with the Holy Spirit. It came with full conviction. We believe that the Word of God is living and active and that it's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. For the Thessalonians, listen, they not only got it, as far, I'm talking about the Word, they not only got it, but the Word got them. And remember this, that's what the church is about. We are about, we exist for supernatural change through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, we've just talked about, what was it? The first point, the right way to respond to the gospel, the Word of God. Did you, have you got it? Accept it? receive it, accept it for what it is. It's the Word of God. It is the Word of God. It is powerful to bring change. Now, it it led to something. It led to an imitation. In the first chapter, you'll remember, Paul said, you imitated us. No, first you imitated the Lord, and then you imitated us. But now he says, for you brothers, look at this, became, this is verse 14, imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. We're going to get to in just a second, how did they imitate them? But I want you to see what an incredible thing this is. They were not living in a, in a day of fast ships and jet planes and internet and media and all of that. How did after three weeks, and remember that Paul did send Timothy back to them to make sure that he hadn't run in vain as far as the gospel. But how did they start imitating churches that they really had no clue about what they were like? How? Man. You think of it, it it indicates right here that the primary makeup of this church in Thessalonica, they were rank pagans. They were worshiping idols. Three weeks, boom, left their idols, came out of idolatry following the Lord Jesus. You've got churches in Judea that had the law of God. These folks had never heard before Paul came, I'm sure, except maybe through some Jews, really of the law of God. For sure they hadn't heard of Jesus. The Jews hated idolatry. 
So they weren't doing idolatry. How did they line up? Listen, folks, here's how. They became a part of the family. And I don't care if it's here or downtown Oklahoma City or in Turkey or in China or wherever else it is. When a person believes in Jesus Christ, they become a part of the family and they take on the family resemblance. You look like your brothers and sisters. Not exactly. There will be some cultural overlay. We know that. But they showed this incredible family resemblance. Paul saw it. He, he knew what the believers in Judea were going through. And he saw, and you guys, Thessalonica, you're looking like your brothers and sisters in Judea. There is just such an incredible power in God's word to unify. Do you realize we're already unified? We're already reconciled? That Paul does tell us to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit that is brought about in the bonds of peace. But there's an incredible power to unify. These idol-worshiping pagans who were converted to following Jesus. They were just like their brothers and sisters, but it goes on. And, and one specific point, how did they mimic them? How did they copy them? It says, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Now think of, if you go back to Acts chapter 17, do you remember the story? Paul's, he's over there. He, he's been kicked out of Philippi. He got in prison, beaten. I mean, beaten badly. He left Philippi. He goes to Thessalonica. He preaches for three weeks. And then what happens? He started experiencing opposition. That opposition became a mob. The mob rioted against them. The mob broke into homes, at least one, a guy by the name of Jason, and they were attacking Christians. And the same thing happened in Judea at the hand of the Jews. You know, there, there's an important concept here, and through the years we've talked about this openly. It is not unusual when a Christian suffers. It's far more unusual if a Christian never suffers. And in fact, Philippians 1.29 is one of those mind-blowing verses. I don't know if you've ever thought of it before, but here's, here's what it says. For to you, believer, has been granted. That word means given as a gift, okay? What's been given as a gift to you? Two things. For Christ's sake, not only that you believe in Him, stop. How precious a gift is it to believe in Jesus? Are you, are you with me? How precious of a gift is it? It, it? It's beyond speech. It's so precious. But then he puts something right up there with it, but also to suffer for his sake. God is in all that is happening in your life for his glory and for your good. 
And back then, that had to do with the most evil cultures and the most brutal leaders. Last thing. Okay, you, you got a picture. Paul, again, he, he says, I, I'm, I'm so grateful for you, church. He, he was. I'm grateful for how you have responded in the midst of difficult, difficult circumstances. You're new Christians, but you get it, and the gospel has gotten you. But then he does something that almost, listen, it almost sounds like a rant. You know what a rant is, don't you? Not a rat. Rant. You ever seen somebody rant? Or they, they go off on you? They rant? They're angry. It almost sounds like this. Now, let me just say a couple of things before we read this again. And it's amazing how we can read through these things and miss it. But this is not anti-Semitism. Paul's been accused before but of, uh, of something like this as being an anti-Semite against Jews. It's not. What he is doing, and we're going to see that in just a second, but, but while Paul was glad over how the Thessalonians had received the Word of God, he was incredibly sad about his own kinsmen and I've looked, and I don't see any other place in the New Testament where Paul does exactly what he does here. He lists the offenses of the Jews. Now, again, remember, no anti-Semitism. Let me bring it up to date. No racism here. He is just giving an accurate portrayal of the truth of what they had done and what they continue to do. So let's look at it. The Jews... What have they done? It says they had killed, murdered the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Acts 2.23, a lot going on in that verse. Who killed Jesus? According to this verse. Or who is responsible for the death of Jesus? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. Did God have something to do with Jesus' crucifixion? The answer would be yes. He did. Second, Peter is preaching here on the day of Pentecost, you crucified. He's pointing at the Jews who were not, some of them not even there that day. You crucified. Then he indicts, Peter does, a third group that would have been the Romans by the hands of lawless or wicked men. So back in Thessalonians, here Paul is saying, you killed the Lord Jesus. Oh, not only that, you killed his messengers. And there are, so, there are so many allusions to that. You go back into the Old Testament, you read, but one of the summaries best given is in Matthew 23, where Jesus is speaking to the Jews, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets, so that on you, now watch this, may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of innocent Abel. That's back at the very beginning. That was the first murder to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, 
whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. So he says, okay, choose. This is just fact. You killed the Lord Jesus. You killed, you murdered the prophets. You drove us out and you displeased God. There are so many, you can go back to the Exodus and find so many statements of how the, 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 the Israelites just wore God out, displeasing him. But I, I chose this one out of Romans 8, 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It says you also, he's not through. You oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. And then this almost makes a person shudder. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, the cup is full, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. Now, once again, was Paul an anti-Semite? Was he a racist? No. Let me just, let me just show you the heart of Paul. This, this is scathing. But you've got to balance it with other portions of Scripture, like Romans chapter 9, where he speaks of their privilege. We started out this message by talking about privilege and the incredible tragedy of privilege that's squandered. Paul's heart was, I, I'm in anguish, I, unceasing sorrow, great sorrow. I wish that I myself might be accursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of my brothers. And, and then I've skipped over some things to, to show you that in chapter 10, verse 1, his heart's desire and prayer was that the Jews would be saved. But listen to the privilege that they had. I wish myself that I were accursed, cut off. They are Israelites, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs from their race according to the flesh is the Christ. You take that much privilege, Paul says they're without excuse. Absolutely Without excuse, without excuse. Now, that last phrase that says this, look at it. God's wrath has come upon them at last. Remember, that contrast with contrast within chapter 1 and verse 10, the deliverance, the rescue from God's wrath for the Thessalonian believers. But this phrase... is a theme that runs throughout Scripture. I, I, I just, I looked at this a lot this last week. God's wrath coming upon them at last, this could refer to the end time when God's wrath will ultimately judge them. They will be cast into an eternity called hell. But, but here Paul is speaking in the present tense. God's wrath has come upon them. Because with all of their great privilege, they've turned their back on God. A last thought before we take the Lord's Supper. Does God, is it revealed in, in, in the Bible, and the only, the only thing that matters is what does the Word say? 
Is it revealed that God judges nations? I heard one yes. Starts early in Genesis chapter 6, God judged all the nations of the earth with the flood. Genesis 15, 16 was a prophecy about, and, and this is interesting because the language comes from that. He talks about Israel coming back into the land of Canaan because God was dealing mercifully with the nations, the seven nations that would be driven out. And he said, you're going to be in slavery down in Egypt because the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet full. But it will be full. And I'll send you in to dispossess those nations from the land. Did God judge in Genesis 18 and 19 two cities, significant cities called Sodom and Gomorrah? For what? If you look in Ezekiel, you'll find that they had a lot of food, they had a lot of comfort and pleasure and ease, but it says that they committed one abomination too many. The nations of Canaan did, and boy, these are strong, these are strong images from the Bible. Did the land vomit them out because of their wickedness and sin? One of the questions during these days I've been asked most often is, what about America? Now, just remember, America is a little slice of what's going on all around the world and historically what has gone on, but what about America? Would you say that we have been blessed? And when I say privileges, please do not hear me say money and affluence and food and all of those things. We have been blessed with a wealth since the founding of our country. The knowledge of the Word of God, unfettered. Churches shut down in California, that's an anomaly for us. We're used to freedom, to worship, to look at this book and take it in. Greater privilege always leads to greater judgment when it is pushed aside. What are we to do? Personally, we are to repent if we have received but not accepted the Word of God. We're to repent. What are we to do as citizens of this country and citizens of this world? We cry out to God. God, grant repentance. To the city in which we live, to the state, to the nation, to the world in which we live, that they might turn to Christ. The issue is for you today. If you have not received Christ, if you received the word, have you accepted it into your own heart? In a moment, we'll take the Lord's Supper. It is for those, not just who are members of this church, but if you have received and accepted, you don't live in perfection, but you live in the direction of following the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, you'll be invited to take the Lord's Supper with us. I want to pray for you. And then we will partake of the Lord's table together. 
Father, I thank you for your, your word. I thank you for how Paul uh, really gets down to brass tacks in terms of his love for all people, but his gratefulness for those who have responded to the word and his great sadness over the tragedy of those with such privilege who've turned their backs upon God. Lord, I'm thankful that you're not through with the Jews. I don't understand all of that. I just know that that they are still included in your divine sovereign plan. We are glad for that, but it will not come apart from them repenting and believing in their Messiah. So I pray that that would happen. I pray that it would happen in this room today that people would turn away from sin and idolatry and turn by faith to Christ crucified. Lord, let it not just be a a transaction, a business transaction, but something from the heart. And God, make it real and make it last. And we thank you. Now, Lord, we take our cues from your word as we now turn to a passage of Scripture and partake of the Lord's Supper together. I pray that you would help us as we do so. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 